Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Rob Dix. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I've, I've been a listener of the show for such a long time, so I was really, really happy that you invited me on. Oh, that's very nice to hear. How, how long have you been listening for? Literally years. I think I'm, I probably found it for the first time when you had um, Akil Patel on, because ah. we're uh, because we're friends, and so pro- that was probably the first episode I listened to. Um, but then I've sort of become a regular listener ever since then. I've just really enjoy it because I don't. I haven't found many British podcasts on this kind of theme. Loads of American ones, and also you're kind of you tend to hear from people that are underrepresented you could say in the mainstream media so i always enjoy kind of the takes from the the guests that you get oh brilliant well that's that's very nice to hear thank you um the um the reason why your your name popped up was because i was browsing amazon as it does and it recommends certain books and a, a book came up and it um it had like five solid five star reviews you know it, it's where all the stars are there's no it's little it's amazing great... what you can do with chat gpt these days <laughs> i know <laughs> so i thought this looks this looks interesting so i thought i'd take a punt and uh i ordered it and um it was your book it was the, the price of money and and um I, I i read it in one sitting and thought this is fantastic this is absolutely brilliant really enjoyed it i've got to get rob on the podcast so that's you amazing know, I, was, I was going to ask you how you came across it i'm glad to hear the amazon algorithm's doing its job yeah that's, uh, that's brilliant so i bought a, so, couple, a couple of copies how, how did, yeah. sorry to cut in Paul. How, how did the book come about rob what was well, the gener- what's the backstory it's i i've kind of got an probably a very different kind of backstory from your normal guests and I don't have a background in finance or the markets or anything like that at all. So I came out of university, spent 10 years in the music industry, then fell out of then fell out of that into into residential property and got into buy to let and started presenting it's a, a podcast. It's a story about. we've told, heard so many times before. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that you've got a tremendous advantage. That's a tremendous tremendous advantage to have not been kind of had your view tainted by what inverted commas should be the the way forward in financial markets you've worked it out yourself which is even better and that comes across in the book as well i hope so i've because i've had like massive imposter syndrome when writing the book because mm. but i really I, I i know less about this subject than probably pretty much every guest you've ever had on but i did but i i saw that as a i sort of came to see it as a strength because i'm not beholden to any particular worldview i wasn't kind of didn't wasn't indoctrinated with a particular way of thinking about economics at university or anything like that and just kind of what what i am quite good at i think is of absorbing a lot of information going deeper than most people probably would bother to try and figure stuff out and then explaining it pretty simply and making it accessible which is what i think the book ended up doing i like to think i've heard from lots of people who've said that they've never picked up a book like this before and never normally would but they they came to kind of understand how all this stuff works for the first time which is which is what the whole point of it is because i just think it's all it's so important to understand but just everything about the the subject from the way it's explained the language and everything just kind of is almost like it's designed to keep people out and prevent them from understanding exactly i mean the, the, the name of the book is the price of money um how to prosper in a financial world that's rigged against you and there is a quote from so a lot of it is about money creation and banking and 
debt and all of these kind of issues. There is one quote in there that is, it will be known to anyone that sort of delved into monetary uh, theory, money creation, which is a quote from, I think it's J.K. Galbraith saying that the, the act of money creation is so simple that the mind is basically repulsed by it. Yeah. And that, that's, I, I love that quote. And that's how I felt trying to understand it for myself and then try to put, to put it across. It's like, well, this is it. But this is how it works. <laughs> and you can't kind of, when you get down to it and you kind of go through, get past all the complicated, convoluted ways that things are explained, you do end up with something that's really simple, but completely counterintuitive to what most people would think. And I, I sort of, I was digging for ages because like I said, I'm not trained in this. Like, is this really, am I missing something? But then I kind of got to, oh no, I'm, I'm not missing something. This really is how it works. That's bonkers. I mean, we've discussed this at, 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 at length on the, the pods over the years. And I, su- I suggest that if you were to throw a stick, even in the center of the city of London, 99 out of 100 people would not, have, would not be particularly au fait with the act, of, the act or the process of money creation. No, I, I don't think so. And there's, there are so many things I came across while trying to research the book. I don't know if I'm able to think of an example off the cuff or not so many things where I was kind of researching something and like something is stated. They go, okay, well, where did that statement come from? So I keep trying to research it. And uh, it turns out that, it, that there is no, it just doesn't make sense. Well, you see, everyone's, it's, everyone's it's just fundamental, repeating something. the fundamental idea that the, the banks lend money that they've already got, mm. and which isn't actually to, the case. <laughs> but trying to break that kind of worldview is so difficult. And I found, and I found, yeah, it was, it was a try, it's hard in writing the book to try to, I have to kind of have a load of exp- explanatory stuff going, look, you're not going to believe this, but this really is how it happens. And it's like, okay, it's slightly simplified, but really not much. But people are so, people have kind of grown up just kind of being told or assuming that things work a certain way. And it kind of makes sense, you know, like people deposit money and then they lend it out to someone else. But try, trying to get past that, it's quite a, it's quite a big mindset shift to make. One of the themes that we've discussed at some length, we increasingly discuss, is basically the role of education in financial, uh, in people's financial understanding. And I think probably, well, I'll let, I'll let Paul give his take, but mine would be that, I mean, the the FCA has a formal obligation as part of its brief to 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 give rise to a sort of greater degree of investor education generally. But the reality is, the schools just don't do any of this stuff. No, but I I don't know what's been taught now but i certainly never learned anything of of any use yeah i i learned um i learned economics at a level and i thought this is interesting but it it's not when i when i actually started studying the markets for myself i realized it was all nonsense and it didn't have any bearing on on the real world Mm. um and and people don't act like that, which is why I then became fascinated with psychology and the psychology of trading. When I was teaching people about financial markets and, and using charts, I was looking at their emotions and how they reacted. And And I would suggest that if anyone was interested at school and wanted to know about financial markets, they should learn psychology. That, that would be the best thing. And then learn about the financial markets themselves and how they work, because psychology can can be useful in every part of, of their their understanding of markets and understanding of everything pretty much. But just circling back to, to the actual book and how you wrote it. Um, I, I, I think that people who aren't experts in a field will do a better job of explaining 
broadly how something works because they go back to first principles and they don't use any jargon. Whereas, for example, I've, I've watched um, supposed very basic coding courses where they go, this is for a beginner. And, and I've, I actually mm. understand it because I know how it works. And I'm thinking they're using terms here that people just will not understand. They're just throwing in these terms. And if you are, if you're a beginner, you're just going to be completely lost. And again, that's what I liked about your book because you went right back to the beginning, actually filled some gaps in that I didn't know about how, um, the, the history of how money, uh, came to be, you know, the, I knew about the gold standard and I knew how the Bretton Woods and all that stuff. And so I had a, I, I had that history, but you really filled in all the gaps. And you said before that you went into a lot of detail, uh, more than any, anybody or more than most people. That's absolutely evident in the way you, you, um, created the book because you, you've literally just stripped everything back and gone, right. This is the beginning. This is how it started. This is how it developed. And this is where we are now. And what's even more interesting, you've said, this is where we're going, which is what I loved about the book. You gave some predictions as to what you thought were good investments for the future. And um, and, and you back them up with some really solid reasoning, which I thought was great. So from music into finance, that is that step is you said you did it. But what, what drew you in? What, what, what was the what was the allure? That's a good question. I think is I went, I, so I must have been, I, I, I was sort of working for a major record label and then I sort of left to set up my own thing in 2008, just as everything was collapsing. And that kind of, I was suddenly, because I wasn't just getting paid a salary anymore, all of that kind of thing suddenly felt far more relevant. So I started to take a bit of an interest. And then from getting into property, I kind of start, started out in a, you know, looking at not considering the broader context at all, just kind of go, well, how much rent does this bring in or whatever. But then over time and presenting a podcast about it for years, I came to realize that the broader economic concept was so important to, to, ev to everything. So I started to read more and more about economics. And then it really stepped up another level in 2020 with everything that was going on um, when sort of COVID came into our lives. And that was just, that was the point at which I, I need to start understanding this for myself because that was a point at which you sort of, after years of there is no magic money tree, it's like, oh, well, well there isn't, but here's an extra 450 billion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because, because we've suddenly got some bills to pay. Yeah. So, well, hang on, how does that work? And so that, that was the point at which I, I really wanted to understand it for myself and the way the best way to understand it is something is to write it down and try to explain it to something else or to someone else. So that's what that's how the book came about. I was just I the, the purpose of writing it was for me to understand it. Mm. And whether it got published or anything else happened didn't really matter. And it I almost sort of gave up on publishing on several occasions because I, well I've kind of got what I need out of this, but doing the the final the final bits of trying to structure it and edit it and do the frankly, the boring bits at the end, are kind of felt, felt like too much work. And it's like, well, is, it, is anyone really going to enjoy this book anyway? Because it is about a pretty dry subject. But ultimately, of course, I'm glad that I did plow on through and get it finished. Also, I think most people would, well, the, the topic of money is, 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 it's almost as complicated as quantum physics, because it is uh, one and the same time dry and extremely exciting. I mean, the, the pursuit of it is certainly exciting. So it, it's weird that it's, it's brought down to the level of the, the dull by, 
I can only assume basically crap financial journalists and crap financial writers, neither of which is obviously relevant in this case. No, and, and I think it comes back to the point that no one, because most people haven't gone back and kind of questioned it from first principles, nobody, like journalists, politicians, everyone else, no one particularly understands it all that well. It doesn't have, doesn't help that they're like, as as I kind of, there's a, a book um, called Fixing Economics by George Cooper, which um, oh we know I, we know George he's a fund manager isn't he? I think I probably heard about it on your podcast. Yeah. Um, that's probably where I picked it up from. And uh, just reading that that was I just thought that was amazing because he does such a good job of explaining how like basically there are like there are no answers. Economists can't agree on anything between themselves. The kind of dominant paradigms that go can go on for like hundreds of years longer than they should do. And so so like the whole the whole way in which everything is explained to you through the media and the way economists and politicians, anyone think about something is based on a model that just fundamentally is not true. And you know, it's not true, yeah. but no one's acknowledging that, which is probably why so much of what you hear about money just doesn't make any sense. And that's not because you kind of assume it's because you're stupid, you don't get it, you don't understand the jargon. But no, that's not it. If it seems like it doesn't make sense, it's because it doesn't. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's what I learned early in my career. I was, um, I used to write down in a book what was written in the papers about certain stocks and then and make a diary of what actually happened. And I found mm. that they were using um, the reasons for why a certain stock should go up for the same reasons as to why they should go down. <laughs> and I realized this is this isn't this isn't information here. This is mm. this is just the press giving short term, um, you know, putting the tail on the donkey after the event. And actually mm -hmm. it was then, then when I worked in the city and um, it was, you know, my job to be an analyst and, and cover the financial markets, I found it quite interesting that when I was on a, uh, on the desk and you get ring, you know, you get a call from a certain uh, newspaper or, 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 or newswire. And they'd say, you know, why is Sterling fallen today? And, and the economists would go, oh, I don't know. Why has it gone down? Oh, that number, it should have gone up because that number was stronger. You know, well, it was, uh, you know, it was stronger than expected, but it was, that was anticipated. So that's why it went down. All priced, you, it was all priced in. Yeah, it was all priced in. And <laughs> it's like, okay. And then, then you, then you see it coming up on the newswire. You see your report there coming up on, and it's like, whoa, this, and this is how the financial market works. You see it on the other side. But, I'd also defend that, uh, you know, that type of journalism for the point of um, that there's a machine that needs to be fed and it's a short term machine and it's people just saying, well, why, why is this happening now? And it's what's difficult to explain about the markets is that the markets are forward looking. So a lot of the time you're not seeing reactions to what's happening now. You're seeing an anticipation of what happens in the future. And mm. then it takes a sort of counterintuitive explanation of why something could be strong, but actually cause the economy to, or the, the markets to move in the opposite direction. And that's not something you can explain in a very short term, um, you know, report about what's happened today. And so mm. th there is this machine that needs to be fed and they're feeding that machine, but it's certainly something that you need to be aware of and get yourself off and do your own research. As we say a lot on the pod, and you've certainly done, a lot of your own research. So it seems like you've been led towards the property market um, as as a primary kind of investment. But do you also look at stocks as well? I do, not with 
any great deal of sophistication because I don't really have the time. But uh, to to sort of be a probably active investor, but I, I I love listening to like some of the guests that you have and sort of hearing their views. I'm sort of very very persuaded by lots of it, but then ultimately I sort of end up sort of sticking things in index funds because I don't really have the the time to research it or keep on top of it all. But I do sort of invest in in stocks and gold and a bit of Bitcoin and all that kind of thing as well. Everything except bonds, basically. <laughs> Which is the correct answer. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I always cite because we have a similar background to the extent that I have no, no economic, formal economics training whatsoever. But mm. the, the way I've sort of been able to, to rationalize that in the context of what I've done for the last 30 years is if you start it by accident in the bond market, which is, which is where my career began, it fills in the gaps for you because the I've always argued that the bond market is is a largely or it should be largely dispassionate sort of objective, mathematically driven process as opposed to the stock market, which is basically full of chances telling each other stories. Mm -hmm. So if you do if you do have ex get exposure to the bond market at a relatively early stage, you get to know you get to be broadly familiar with concepts like you know inflation and interest rates and you know CPI and GDP and all this stuff without having had any economics background but you, the, the talk that what we're just discussing about journalism is it reminds me of the fond days when I was still on Twitter and um, one of the one of the finer coinages that 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 I and my colleague Killian came up with at the time was the hashtag financial media clutching at straws and you can really go to town with that one because you can then say like Sterling came off because David Beckham wasn't selected in the England team or you know and you just get this really, obstru really obscure really abstruse sort of connections there's a there's a website I think it's called like spurious correlations oh, which yeah. will which will link like um, drownings in California to the the release of certain Nicolas Cage movies. That's it. Yeah. Was that <laughs> was that in your book, Rob, as well? Or am I misremembering that? I don't think it's in the book. I may have written about it somewhere else. I know I'm Tim's definitely written it, but I th I wondered whether that was uh, I, whether whether that was something because I do you talk about correlations? Not in the book. No, no. you don't. I'm, okay, I'm, I'm, okay. I'm, pre I'm, I'm pretty sure that I've written something about that somewhere. Mm. But it absolutely it, falls into the scope of journalism, financial journalism, not having a clue and just seizing on the sort of the the, the, the most obvious apparent answer to things. Mm. The worst job in the world, surely, is the poor sod at the FT that does like the yesterday in the market section, and then they've got to they've got to come up with reasons why stocks, bonds, currencies, and commodities all did exactly what they did. And all they can, all they can do is sort of ring around their mates and say, "Please tell me why this happened yesterday." And everyone's just and it's all this, this activity is entirely pointless. Yeah, but everyone wants a story. Okay, yes. people people want to understand and be told something that they can grasp that's comforting and kind of feels that there is some kind of. Do you of think it's because we need to world? be in control? We need we need to have an even if illusory sense of that we're in control of the situation. I think so. I think a lot, a lot of the human, human beings crave crave certainty in a in a world that is is by definition uncertain. Yeah, I think I think so. And people just um, it's 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 got, it's completely unsatisfactory to sort of go. These things happen. We don't know why. And also, it's not it's not going to sell many papers. If you just, so yeah. things happened yesterday. We don't know why they happened. They just did. All right, and they'll probably happen again tomorrow. You kind of need to have some kind of explanation. But 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 do you guys think that? Do you think that it is possible to explain what has happened or what's going to happen? I think, just there is, the wrong I think there is now a gap in the market for the, the SC, which will be short for the spurious correlation, where you can have an entire 
uh, entire publication dedicated to fatuous reasons for things <laughs> happening, like, well, the gold price came off surprisingly yesterday because of something that happened at the BAFTAs. Yeah. <laughs> well, f from my perspective, it's um, what I refer to as dark information. And there's things out there that we don't know, and you see the effect. And I can give you an example, if you a recent one that uh, we will all know about, and that is the decline of Bitcoin and why it was going down. Now, there's no... We, you don't specifically know why it's falling. You just know it's falling. And it was falling at a time when so-called risk-on was going up. So equities based around September, October last year were moving higher. There was a general move into base metals. Precious metals were basing out to moving higher. So everything was moving up, but cryptocurrencies weren't. And that was unusual because you had that, that correlation worked fairly well. And then we discover that there's, you know, SBF and this fraud going on. And that that comes right at the end of it. So you, you, you can't there's no way of explaining it. It's a bit like when Enron was collapsing. There was no there were people out there who who could see that there was something wrong and were were, were digging for information. And actually I met somebody who worked for Enron and they said, yeah, it was, it was, uh, you know, going, it was going completely wrong and they were trying to convince people not to leave and stuff like that. Um, and, and, and so the wheels were coming off. So information was there, but it wasn't in the press and you couldn't have known about it unless you knew someone who worked there. And it's exactly mm -hmm. the same situation. You, that's why I use technicals because the price actually will adjust and you'll see that there's something going on, but that crucial final part and it goes back to, again, what I was saying about why I used charts and went to technicals as opposed to using so-called economic flawed information um, it w was because the chart would be saying something's wrong and it's just you couldn't put the two together until after the event. Now, if you look at what happened as soon as this fraud was revealed and everyone panicked out of Bitcoin, it's just gone up. And and so people say, well, well, hang on a minute, this has just happened. Why has the market gone up? It doesn't make any sense, but it, it makes perfect sense because it's recovering what it lost because it should have gone up with everything else. It's adjusting its position. So it does, as you say before, Rob, it, it does make sense. There is a logic. It's just you've got, you've got to find that trading logic. And some economists do, and I've worked with some great economists who who um, know that the, the the fundamental economic rules don't work, but they apply them themselves. Or there are people at the, the cutting edge of, of, of investment, like Tim, who's found something that works for him and uses his own rules and applies that to the markets. It's, um, dare I say, it's not a, it's not an economic textbook type of um, analysis. It's, it's your what you found to work and what you found to be right and correct in your own head, not some you know, arcane um, economic model. Uh, if if that's okay to say, Tim, I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth. Yeah, no, that's no, that's absolutely fine. Yeah, and I've got, so I think that, that that's that's like you 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 are both coming at it from a position of right. Like, 
I want to be right. And because I want to make money for me or my clients or whatever, I want, so I want to find out what works and do that, where it feels like most of the economics profession is coming from the view of like, well, this needs to fit the model. So the yes. model is right. And if the reality doesn't match up to that, then there's something wrong with reality rather than something wrong with the model. And also they need, they need to be seen to be winning an argument, whereas ultimately mm. the, 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 the great and also simultaneously frustrating thing about the investment business and investment practice is, now, you either make money or you don't. It's a completely binary outcome. It, a trade either works or an investment either works or it doesn't. There's no middle ground. You can't say, it's not like an English essay when you can say, well, eight out of 10, it was, it was re really well written, but I'm, for the life of me, I can't remember what the content was. So it, it's absolutely, it, it, it actually gives you a, a definable outcome. Mm. Whereas an mm. economist, you know, is, as, as I someone said, an economist's job is to tell you why what he forecasts was going to happen didn't happen. Yeah. One of the most interesting periods in history has been, certainly recent history was obviously the financial crisis where you stepped into the market, Rob, which is quite incredible. Mm. I mean, how, how you weren't completely frightened away from everything, I don't know. But at that point, um, when I was working in the city, what you found was all the economists who, who didn't see it coming suddenly started to shift their position. Instead of saying our method of analysis was wrong and we need to rethink this, uh, and that, if ever there was a moment where you'd say, look, this seriously doesn't work, you know, what can I do to improve it? Um, no, no, not at all. It was all, oh, well, yeah, it was, we couldn't see it. It wasn't possible to see it. Well, that's a complete lie. It was possible to see it. Um, and people were warned and they still didn't listen. Um, th so there's no hubris. There's no, there's no sort of, um, admission that they are ever wrong. It's that arrogance that really annoys me. And it, that's why I, I think you may have read Akil Patel's book. That's why I absolutely loved his mm. book, because it came from that, um, that, that standpoint of saying, well, you know, his business, his family's business nearly collapsed because of the financial crisis. Um, why was it these economists couldn't see it? And I do remember the, the, the question being raised by the queen and them having a very unsatisfactory answer as to why they didn't see it coming. But more importantly, there's been no change in, in attitude since then. It's almost like, well, you know, we couldn't have seen it and we're just going to carry on with our models. So for people who don't know, the arrogance in economics is, is, is what actually makes it so frustrating when you're, but it also, as Tim says, it depends what you're trying to achieve. If, if your role is just to talk about the markets, well, that's, that's in many ways, it's quite an easy thing to do because you have no risk. You have no skin in the game. You can just make predictions. And if you're wrong, you're wrong. When you're a technical analyst, people don't give you that, um, that leeway. Cause it's like, they expect everything you to say, everything you say to be right because there's no story behind it, kind of fluffing it up and making it sound good. There's just like, well, the chart says the market's going to go up or the chart says the market's going to go down in the way I read it. And that's, that's it. So there's not much, it's not a dinner party story. Uh, it's just the way the market looks. And so that's, that's why it, it continues in that way. But if I'm allowed to use a quote, um, given that, that Tim is the quote master, um, one of the the most fascinating things that I've I found also from from Ackles' book was the 
new the um, the rule in Monopoly that says that the if the bank runs out of money, it can print it at will and write it on bits of paper, which I almost did. I had to check. I had to get my copy out and have a look because I could not believe that that was that was the case. And it actually is correct. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And that there was um because obviously like in with all the QE in 2020, that was like well, a uh, basically an example of that happening like they've just, the, the, the government but the, for, for a while it's been taken down now but there was a, a line on the bank of england website that i think i quote in the book that's on there for they kind of stuck it on there after the fact that said we don't use what well, is expl- explainer of qe and it said we don't use qe to pay for like government spending needs or something yes. like this it's just this it's like but you did you totally yeah. totally did yeah. <laughs> but then and that line's gone now but it's like wow that's just amazing yeah, it was the way you said that the, the government, the way that the government, because I didn't know that that happened in that way. I thought it was a brilliant explanation. Um, perhaps you could explain to people what, what you were talking about there, because that was I thought that was one of, one of the really most powerful parts of the book as well. I think the, so, so in the book, I'll explain the, the, the sort of the QE of 2008, which, well, at the time, back then when it was happening, I didn't understand it. And I think, again, a lot of people didn't understand it because everyone thought it was going to be very inflationary, turned out not to be inflationary. And now we can kind of look at the mechanism and understand why that was the case. But then you know, we got QE again in 2020, which was completely different because the the money was actually not just washing around in the financial system. It was the whole point of it was to give to people to spend. Um, and so the money ends up in the real economy, therefore inflation, but like 18 months later or whatever it was. But the the, but the my my sort of understanding of what happened, which seems to have not been, didn't really get spoken about much at the time, even though it was kind of obvious, was that the, the government suddenly needed to produce like billions of pounds for sort of spending on like furlough and encouraging people to eat house and whatever else they were doing at the time. They weren't going to go to the bond market for it because they weren't sure that the demand would be there or what price they'd have to pay. And so they, they sort of literally got the Bank of England to sort of print it and sort of the, and, and buy sort of buy the debt. But when you had to, but there's a chart in the book where you sort of look at it month by month, you sort of plot um, sort of Q, QE month by month against the government's cash needs. And it's an exact match. So well, clearly that's what was happening. But I don't think even now anyone in the general public really understands that that was the case. But a lot of this stuff can be readily explainable if 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 people were paying attention to the 2008 crisis, because what I would humbly submit happened back then is that the banks, you know, royally screwed up, and then billions, if not trillions, of taxpayers' money was redirected to the banks, and the banks promptly afforded themselves huge bonuses. At least Wall Street yep. did. So, in other words, you've got two. If you're a government, there are at least two ways you can you can spend basic taxpayers' money. One is by giving it to the banking system and then expecting the bank, and then, then we know that the banks, if history is any guide, will give it to themselves. Or the alternative is doing what they did more recently, as you say in the book, which is give it directly to the people, and then you can expect it to be spent. Yeah. Yeah. But, but it's also setting a rather ominous precedent in relation to things like, um, you know, universal basic income and stuff like that. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, um, the other, there's so many things that have happened over the last sort of 15-ish years that if, if people, I think... It's like we've people, had centuries of economic tinkering and experimentation. Yeah, but if people actually understood it, I, I, well, 
I think I think that there's there's a lot to I think there's a lot to be gained from people not understanding it because because as you, there's like another it quote it's another quote you use in the book which I think is attributed to Ford yeah and possibly Henry Ford which is if people understood really what was going on in banking there'd be a revolution tomorrow yeah exactly and that that's another thing that kind of emerged from 2008 because the whole like the whole mechanism of QE that was used was the the pop, the point of it was to boost asset prices, basically. And like when, you know, when you actually go back and you read the Bank of England paper at the time, and they talk about, it, I couldn't believe it because it's like, yeah, the whole, like the almost the entire thrust of the policy is that this is going to increase inequality. It's going to enrich asset owners. That's the point. That's meant to sort of sort of have a load of downstream effects that are somehow beneficial for GDP or whatever. But then you've got politicians coming out endlessly or hand wringing about inequality. So, but you you caused this. And you knew it would, and that was that was kind of the point. So, looking to the future, um, what, what what do you think will happen with with inflation? Do you think it will accelerate, hum along at a relatively stable level, or do you think we're going to get deflation? I'm I'm a bit perturbed because at the because what I've sort of put in the book is and which well, at the time of because it's a massive delay when you're publishing something at the time this wasn't what's being said but now it's like it's it's an it's annoyingly in line with kind of current orthodoxy which is that inflation is going to is going to come down but i my belief is that it's good i mean i'm sure there will be spikes and all the rest of it but but i I'd sort of see it being sort of somewhere sort of like around the sort of the four or five percent mark on on average over the next sort of however many years so in other words like not out of control like it has been but not sort of falling neatly back to the two percent and staying there which is what how how all the projections graphs that come out of the banking always end always ends at some point at the end of the graph with it coming back to two percent and staying there yeah i don't think i, I don't i don't think that's going to happen i think it's, I, I sort of see it sort of being more like four or five percent which is sort of par- partially for all the obvious reasons that you know things are like the world is more inflationary now like reshoring and supply chains and sort of peak globalization and all the rest of it and the other but the other one being but it's quite convenient to have that if you when you've got massive amounts of debt that you're trying to erode in real terms so i think so i think if you can get get inflation to a level where it's higher and but it's not high enough that everyone notices and starts asking for pay rise and getting upset about it that's probably a pretty good outcome that's box two tim isn't it uh box two slash three two slash three so is but because box number two is outright default oh box sorry i thought that was box, box one i thought that was box no, one no so. but, but box one is engineer enough economic growth to keep the debt service ah. but I, don't think that, I don't think that's remotely plausible anymore so we i think where we are now and the continuum of how to deal with a an, an unreconcilable debt predicament is box number two which is default and box number three which is inflation In, inflate it away so it's it's interesting that and you've always said that tim that you thought that uh ever since we've done the pod you've said inflation they're gonna then they will engineer it and you need to protect your assets and actually because, because that is that is that is all of financial history yes and if if you look at um the way you describe it i think in your you know when if you put it in these terms if if inflation is if real inflation is running around say eight to ten percent and you think about how much money you are losing by having your uh, having money in a bank account, then it makes perfect sense that property prices and other asset prices uh, will, will will rally because. But that's that's something else you say, though, isn't it, Rob? That you shouldn't basically have a lot of large amount of money in cash 
or, or bonds. Yeah, exactly. So the 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 have, have you, and I think this is another kind of it's something that most I, it's even more the case now that well, you've got in in your bank you you might be able to get three percent in the bank or something, which which I think now makes it more insidious. The fact the real rates are negative, but it seems like you're actually it's, it feels like you're getting something on your mm. savings, but in fact you're falling back by exactly as much as you were before. So I don't think again this is something people probably aren't going to really understand is sort of out in the wider world. But yeah, you don't want to have much cash. You do you do want to be you, you don't want to have bonds because sort of the real return on that surely is going to be negative. You want to be investing in something. Probably well for, obviously it's not the same as it was when you could borrow money for free, but probably using debt is probably still not a bad idea to to a degree because again um rates, real rates are going to be negative. Uh, but so you've got to invest in something. But then the 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 conclusion that's probably a bit unsatisfactory in the book is that you need to invest in something. But the or the forward returns on pretty much everything are probably going to be worse than they have been over the last ten twenty years because we've like a, a, a giant headwind has has gone away. So, sorry, a giant tailwind has gone away. So Ooh, lower you, rates. Exactly. Yeah. So I don't. I, I don't know what you guys think, but sort of when when you go and look at sort of take your sixty forty portfolio and backtest it to the seventies or whatever, and oh great, well you're going to make like eight percent a year after inflation. Well, we probably not. And so I don't. I'm not feeling super excited about any asset class really. But you've got to but, be invested in something. But the other the other the other question is whether, and this is something that we've been focusing on quite a bit over the last few months whether the 70s is an appropriate comparison to the period we're living through. And I would argue that it is. And 60-40 got smashed in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So whether you were in stocks or bonds didn't actually make an awful lot of difference because you still lost money in real terms for over a decade. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it, real inflation, I think, is, is quite important to make. I don't. Do you look at shadow stats at all, Rob? No. Oh, you've not heard of shadow stats? Okay, sh- shadow stats is is the the equivalent of the... The, the government stats, but it shows you what they really are, what they've, Ooh. if they weren't engineered, I think you, I think you'll really like it. And so it will show what real inflation is. And I think that's a, that's a really big point. Inflation is pretty much what you decide is in the basket for inflation and what you leave out. And so mm. that's why we're having so many people uh, at the moment who are striking because they can't afford or they're seeing the, the value of their wages fall so much. Um, and and you might think, well, they're complaining about getting a relatively large increase, but it's because real inflation is obviously running much much higher than than the government w- will will show in their stats, and so th- that's why it makes even more sense. And that the disparity between the three percent that you may get in your bank account and the actual real world is is even bigger. Um, mm. So, and it's it's a shame that that you would. <laughs> People who are prudent, who think, well, actually, we should be careful about how we manage our money and put some away for a rainy day and all that. That's all a really, really good thing. But you're almost being forced to enter a system. And that's, I guess, at the back, always been at the back of my mind about markets since the, the financial crisis. Uh, I, I, I w- I've been overly pessimistic and expecting the market to go down. Part of that is beca- has been because I never thought they fixed the problem in the first place. And Mm. it felt like we're entering, by buying, you're entering this sort of corrupt system. But it's just a question of how long this system lasts for and when it will end. And 
it will end. It's just a question of when and how big the correction will be. But it, I get the sense that we're not going to end, you know, soon. It's just it, this is going to keep going into a new phase until it really accelerates, and then it gets out of control because pretty much the government will always cock it up somehow, and that's that's just the way it will be there'll be too much debt at some point inflation will be out of control they won't be able to raise interest rates or if they do it will just bring the whole system back down which is pretty much what happened in 2008 but you do allude you do allude to this in the book though don't you so uh, unless unless i'm hugely misinterpreting the the later chapters uh, my, my sense is that you are expecting some form of let's say monetary system regime change so it may not we don't know exactly what it might be, what form it might take, but because this always happens, because monetary systems always change. Yeah, exactly. And the, the I, I think it's in the the the, the version that's being republished has got like an extra afterword, which has got some sort of sort of principles to live by in it. And I can't remember whether what I'm about to say is in the, the existing version or the new one. But uh, but I sort of tried to sort of to get to a point where like yes there is it is all going to come crashing down horribly and we are going to sort of the the entire monetary system is going to have to sort of be reinvented and re-emerge along some other kind of lines but you probably shouldn't be worrying about it that much which is so it sounds weird but then but the point is you never know when it's going to happen it could it could happen next year or it could could go on for another 20 years or more and and trying to get the the timing of it and knowing and knowing what's going to come next is pretty much impossible. So you kind you kind of, I think, like you said, Paul, you kind of you're, you're kind of being forced into this system. But I don't I don't think there is another way. I don't I don't think sort of sitting on the sidelines and having a hundred percent in gold sort of buried in your back garden is really the answer because there've been there have been people who've been sort of doing that since two thousand and eight, thinking that the the problem hasn't been solved, which is true. It hasn't at all. But it's but it's carried on this long, and it's and it could easily carry on as long again, if not more so. I mean, clearly, so, yeah, it's, it's, clearly, it's, clearly, it shouldn't be a hundred percent gold because we should also consider silver. <laughs> <laughs> and the prudent allocation to Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the, but I think it's that. The, but this is it. Like it, at some at some point, it, it 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 can't continue forever. And history tells us that none of this stuff lasts forever. But no, but knowing, but we know that it's not going to end voluntarily it's it's only when it can't possibly be propped up any longer and you probably we'll probably all be surprised by how long it can be propped up for i mean it seems it seems economics tim yeah yeah well the the crack up boom and you know the 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 the, the credit boom is 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 built on the the sands of sands of inflationism and all this kind of stuff and money creation the the it seems to us that the the there are a few there are a few conclusions to you. I think you're absolutely right in that the, the core frustration is that you can't time this sort of change change in regime. All you can do, and that the, the best you can hope to do, is recognise when the system has shifted from being stable to unstable. Mm. So the example I always keep coming back to from the natural world is: you imagine a snow mass, so the snow settling on say a cliff. All you can hope to do, you can't you can't determine which snowflake is going to trigger the avalanche. All you can do is acknowledge that there comes a point when the snow mass shifts from being in stable equilibrium to unstable equilibrium and then and then respond accordingly. So the best we can hope to do is identify, which I think you can one can do at, a, at an investment level now. And you've already set you've already stated it in the book. You can identify those things which you absolutely should not really own. 
and we'd and I, we'd concur that it should be basically meaningful allocations to cash or bonds. And therefore, by elimination, you can then see, you can then parse and see, you know, sift the tea leaves and say, on the basis of what you shouldn't own, you can then make an informed decision about what you probably should. So, some, yeah. and that's not that's not speculation; that's investment. Something that, mm. um, just on that point, Rob, something that uh, you would know about being in the music world is um, is what happens with um, what's called subtractive EQ when you're trying to get the best sound out of a um you, you know what subtractive eq is obviously yeah 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 so for, for people who don't know it's when when you're listening to you know the old stereos of the 80s where they had those equalizers which changed the frequencies of sound um i often think about that's that's how the markets are in in the sense that um when you when you're presented with some sound and you're processing that sound one of the first steps you take is you take out the bad frequencies. So you sweep around and you listen for frequencies that don't sound particularly nice to your ear. And then you pull those frequencies out and you remove them. And then you can boost everything else because what you're left with is something that sounds better. Now, when, when I, I didn't know about this technique at the beginning of, you know, me learning about, you know, music production and stuff. And so, um, what I thought you did was if you wanted something to sound better, you boost all the frequencies that you, you think will make it sound a bit better. And, mm. but it's not done like that. So it's almost, it's, there's so many parallels of you find across different industries, um, and different analogies. So I, I really like that one because it means you, you pull everything out that, that doesn't work. And then you're, you're trying to boost everything else that, that, that does work. Um, but in it, just a, just a, on a technical um thing about the the book well why is it that um it obviously was on, on amazon it was doing really well and uh you're getting loads of reviews and obviously there was some pickup about that but why did you what's the advantage of going to a publisher um uh, why not just stay where you were it's a really good question and i when i was I saw I started getting approached by publishers because I think it, it got got to number one on Amazon and stayed there for for a little bit. And so the publishers were looking at who is this guy? What's this doing here? <laughs> so I sort of started started getting people getting in touch. And at first I was quite dismissive of it, but then sort of thought thought about it. And I think when you're self publishing, there is there's a ceiling. So you I think I think. I think financially, I'd probably be far better off self-publishing still because you need to send, you need to sell dramatically more books with a with a traditional publisher in, to, in terms for the for the royalty rate to equalise. But in terms of the the quantity that you can sell and the impact a book can have, I still think there's something about you know, the, the about sort of the conventional publishing. It means that you can you get take get taken seriously mm. um in in the media you, know, you get, get taken seriously everyone just like sort of say, saying you sort of say penguin and sort of suddenly everyone sort of sort of takes takes the whole thing a lot more seriously it's not this isn't just some pamphlet that i photocopied just on, on my own um i, I think there's, there's nothing wrong with self-publishing at all but it's still not taken seriously so a combination of, sort of being able to do more um, sort of potentially get get more coverage in the press, get more distribution. Hopefully, we'll have it like sitting there on the shelves at airports and things like that. Persuaded me to to give it a go, and I I still don't know if it's go if it's if it's going to be good sort of worth it or not. But the point of the point of the book 
and sort of all the books I've written aren't to sort of make a living from it necessarily. It's to it's, it's for the fun of it, and it's to get the ideas out there. And mm. with this book in particular, I want to get the ideas out there. So if I can reach more people by going with a publisher, then that's what I'll do. And so far, it's I've it's been a really positive experience. The book isn't out yet, so reserve my right to change that. But so <laughs> but 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 so far, I've found the the they've been good to work with and the, the sort of the feedback on for improving the book for the sort of for the re-release has been pretty sensible and helpful so speaking we'll of self, speaking of self-publishing do you use substack no um so we've got a i've got a little personal newsletter that i do on my own and then for the the property podcast that we do we've, we've got a, a bigger newsletter but we don't use we don't use Substack or any of these things that kind of have the the distribution baked in, and we should probably look at it because mm. all all I'm, I is, is, I mean I I I went migrated to it partly because I say because I, I got booted off Twitter anyway, so it wasn't an option. But um, or at least I I couldn't use Twitter, so I for some reason I, I felt that Substack was a, an, an interesting alternative. But what I found from being on there for about six months is the quality of writing on there is quite exceptionally higher than you'll get in any other form of platform. Mm. Um, and I think it probably is in some form the future in, in the same way that it's, it's, you know, the game is now for the legacy media to lose. Cause I, I'm not mm. sure the legacy media is ultimately in many of its manifestations going to survive the appalling hash it's made of the last three years. Now, do you find Substack useful for people, for discoverability? People yeah, I, I, absolutely. So again, it's, it, it, it's, a, I suppose it's a bit like any other form of promotion, which is you get out, I think you get out of it what you put in, but. What I found is that I can, I can give you some approximate stats. So I put out a weekly commentary for in clients and interested parties that I've been doing for probably getting on for 15 years or more. And that has about 500, currently has about 500 signed up subscribers. I've been on Substack for about six months and I have about 400 people who've currently signed up for it. So they're not big figures in themselves, but in terms of the speed of basically attracting an audience, and I, I, again, this isn't for money, it's purely for, let's say, networking effects, um, you know, and ancillary sort of goodwill effects, let's call it. So, because I, 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 there's no point, because I, I have a paying job from asset management, it would be egregious to, to start charging for content on Substack as well. But what I'm saying is that the thing I've long believed is, and it's, it sounds a bit sort of woo and a bit hippie-ish, but I've long believed that if you put, in, in, in an internet age, if you put stuff out there of value, people will find it. Yeah. And end of story. And I'm, I'm sure you'd, well, I'd, I'd like to think you'd probably concur in the, sort of the general philosophy. And Substack is just a great way of facilitating that in a way that's, in a, in a sense, is, is, it's a lot more credible a platform than, than most of the social media platforms. Definitely, yeah, and that's I think should look into it more. But I think yeah, putting us putting stuff out there and, and it's very out, user it's very user friendly. It's very yeah. user friendly. But I, I completely buy into just kind of putting stuff out there without having any expectation of where it will lead, and that that's kind of what the the reason that, that everything else has happened to in terms of what I've done over the last ten years all started because I start I started a podcast with no just to kind of see what it was like to have a podcast and on episode like two or three i ended up meeting my co-founder who i went to do my next podcast with Brilliant. and everything else came off the back of that and otherwise mm. it, but, but it, I, I that wasn't the point it's just kind of what happened and so my i i love podcasting and you must get lots of 
benefits and networking benefits in terms of people getting in touch as a result of this show. But the big problem with podcasting is that the discoverability is so poor, which is where things like Substack and social media, if you can stay on it, really helps. Yeah. What's the Woody Allen quote? Um, 80% of success is turning up and, and that's, that's what that is. It's just putting it out there and just being there consistently. And I think a lot of people start podcasts and, and these, these things and, and, um, but just don't keep them up. And if you keep going, um, it's, it's like playing that, that, that long game, um, that, that ultimately determines success, uh, to a certain extent, obviously. But, um, in terms of your property uh, podcast and your property analysis, how granular does that analysis become? Do you look at different areas or is it more just practical as to how to, say, negotiate a loan or uh, deal with tenants and things like that? I must admit, I, I haven't listened to it and I would I, I am going to. Yeah, it's... it's um... It's, it's we could get down to uh, sort of like a regional and city level, but don't go don't go too much deeper than that because we're trying to sort of keep it quite broad, so we wouldn't have an episode about like a particular area of a city or anything like that. And we, and but I think the what's we've in, in property as with everything else, you get people who sort of got come out of make predictions about what's going to happen over the coming year, be completely and utterly wrong about it, and then be invited to back to do it again the next year and not picked up on for the fact that they've they've been wrong consistently. And a lot of a lot of that is is based off sort of people consultancies with lots of sort of very sophisticated models about this that and the other mm. and but 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 everything that we've done in terms in terms of what we think is going to happen and like you know, where to invest as in like it became clear years ago that there'd be better returns to be had sort of in the northwest rather than the southeast now how All did you that, know that how did you i'm always intrigued by the the process well, that, that's what I was going to, going to say, which is just that we kind of we based it on kind of common sense. It wasn't based on an. Uh, uh. I think I, I think to you can get to a point where too much data can can lead you astray, and um, it was just sort of like, well, it is kind of when you when you look at things like affordability ratios and what's happened to um, you know what what's happened what happened to London in the early part of the cycle and the 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 differential between London and the rest of the country. It was. It just seemed obvious, but I think the obviously the the problem with residential property is it's it's pretty it's a pretty from for most people you could be it's hard to afford to buy more than like a few tops, and so it's pretty scary. So to to be to be sort of like sitting there in the sort of in Hertfordshire or something and be told, oh, actually, what you need to do is go and buy something up in Manchester. Mm. Or, oh, well, that, that seems that seems scary. I've never been to Manchester. How do I do that? And so mm. do, do, doing it is, an, is another thing. But it, it's just, yeah, a lot of it's been just kind of based on what seems like common sense. I was in Man Manchester not long ago, and it has an amazing feel about it. Really, like, sort mm. of vibrant and, and, and lively. So... Um, difficult question, but if somebody gave you half a million pounds and said, right, you've got to invest it in a property somewhere in the UK, where would, where would you invest it? And I can edit this out if you don't want to answer. <laughs> no, well, the, sorry, the standard answer you have to have to start with, well, you have to, it, has, it depends on what you're trying to achieve. So are you trying to achieve maximum rental income or yes. are you trying to achieve yes. maximum total return over a period of time? Because if you all, all of that, yes, 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 <laughs> more, more. You can't have both. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. if you, 
So if you want if you want to like if you want to maximize rental income, you'd go and invest in the in the northeast or in Scotland and you that that's where you're gonna get the highest yield. See, but yeah. there but 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 tr- typically you get the a lot of the returns come from capital growth and they've historically I'm not in those areas. And to the extent that those areas do get the growth, it happens later. So Mm, but, take, you, um, but you could get the growth there. So you, you're anticipating that growth later on, as you were saying, when London becomes unaffordable and people move out, then the areas that are overlooked then become more valuable. So wouldn't mm, that be part of the strategy potentially? Yeah, but it it, happen, it, it depends on 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 the area. So if mm. we, so if you go to go to extremes, so like there's um, parts of like say North Liverpool, where oh, I know some people who operate there, where, where you can buy houses for like fifty grand or less, and for the um for the whole. Of, Are you uh, serious? Of, yeah, it's it's um and that's not the cheapest in the country either. But but you can get gear houses for about about fifty grand, and then they stay at that price for pretty much the whole of the property cycle <laughs> up until the last couple of years, when they'll suddenly sort of double or triple. And then they'll all come to an end, and they'll go back down to fifty again. Mm. So if you, so if, if you, if you, if you are pretty confident in your timing, obviously property is really, it's it's not suit not suited as an asset class to something you can get in and out of, which I think is actually kind of a feature, not not a bug for a lot of people. But if you do it, then you can do really well. But it's um, you you have to get your timing right. Whereas if you can go 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 somewhere where you go, well, it's 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 pretty reasonably valued on a comparative ba- basis. The the rental income is pretty good, not amazing, but we but it's probably going to grow steadily over time. Then you'll probably end up getting to the same place, but um, without having to be so spot on with your timing. Right. And um, what sort of data do you, do you use? Because I, I had a look at the the government data on on property prices, and I have a feeling that there are private companies that that do this. Is it worth paying for data? I don't. I sort of try to just piece it together from different sources, and so you've got the you got you got your land registry data, which is unhelpful in the moment because it's lagging. Mm. By the time everything anything actually gets registered, then you've got your nationwide and your Halifax surveys, which are at the point that um, uh, mortgage valuation is instructed. Um, but then you've then you've got data from the likes of Right Move and Zoopla, who are looking at like or their leading activities, leading indicators, are looking at activity like um, people. Um, requesting valuation, how many people are browsing the site, all that sort of thing, oh. and so try and try and piece it all together from from those different data sources to get a sense of what's happening. Do they give you that data then, or do you have to pay for it? They, it, they you can't just go on and browse it, but they they'll put out monthly reports that will all sort of show what's been happening. I so, see. So, so, so okay. the number of number of transactions, number of requests. Can you can you see things like um, whether whether prices have been uh, reduced or, or increased? Yeah, Zoopla put out a pretty good um, monthly report. They do one for sales and one for rentals, um, and and they're pretty good because they 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 don't like I say they don't just show you all the data and you can't go in and browse it. So they'll kind of pick out different points to highlight. So you're you're kind of reliant on what what they choose to show you that month. But it'll but it'll track things like well how many how many properties have had price reductions over over the period. How does that compare to normal? Um, what's the average? You can you can track things like well what's the average discount to the asking price that people end up accepting because if that spread comes out then that implies that asking prices in future will come down and that's that sort of thing you mentioned that you 
uh, had written other books. Were they on finance or were they to do with the your original uh, job in the um, music industry? No, they're all about property. So ah. it's pretty. So, so I've got done sort of like three or four property books. Um, so well, one is about the nuts and bolts of renting a property out, which I do not recommend you write a book about because yeah. it changes every year and I have to keep going and updating it. Um, but then I've got got a couple of other kind of more like sort of how to sort of books about how to think about property investment, and and, and they they do really well because pr- property is very it's it's really popular as as an investment i think pop, pop, probably because it's so easy to understand it's how i got into it knowing nothing because it's it, there there aren't many variables it's really easy to understand property and you kind of you feel like you can grasp it pretty quickly unlike most things in finance and then it also there's you don't see a lot of volatility and that doesn't mean the volatility the volatility is not there it's just you can't see it because houses don't transact very often yeah. but it, it, it but it feels like a much more sedate sort of investment so people i think people find it a lot easier to get to grips with and understand in the first place and have the confidence to actually proceed with because there's not this thing where you're not you're not hearing on the news every day about how it's gone up and down by this sort of percentage and it's not going to suddenly move by five or ten percent in a day and do you look at areas outside the uk say france or, or any other european countries no not at all and that's not for any reason other than i it, just a time thing. I just don't, I, I think there are, at every point that I've been involved with it, there's always been sort of some, somewhere in the UK that I sort of believe has been worth investing in. And there, there may, may be a, become a time when that's not the case, but, and then you could look abroad to, to try and find a market that's in a different position. But I think the sort of the, the legal system that underpins it is so important. Mm. And, and the 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 one in the UK is not perfect, but at least it's it's all fairly easy to understand, and, and I understand it. Where I think it'd be very easy to try and go into, and lots of people do this with holiday homes, like go into a different market, not really understanding the legal system, and end up getting into a bit of trouble. The changes in the law with regard to um, renting. So, for example, during the pandemic, it made it very difficult for landlords to to make a make a profit, and it was one of the um, it was one of the elements that I was so impressed about with Akil Patel when he came on and said that the, the property market wouldn't actually go down that much. In fact, it would it would reverse and go back up. And boy, was he right. Um, yeah. it, that didn't seem to make any sense. But I didn't realise that the rules would... Well, I expected the rules to change, but not literally every year. From what I've understood, they've made it much harder to be a landlord. Is is that generally correct or, or, or is it becoming yeah. easier? No, it's 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 been getting harder consistently sort of, mm. every year. So the, it was 2015, 16 that there were the sort of big changes to how property income was taxed for individuals. Um, and that that was sort of the big change. But then consistently every year, it's like they sort of layer more regulation on top. Normally, normally it could have been dealt dealt with by just enforcing the regulation that's already there. But it's easier to just kind of to introduce new ones, and so it gets progressively harder. And then. There's been the the government has been talking for years about how they're going to make it more basically give tenants better security of tenure. They're going to make it harder. They're going to end something that's called called no fault evictions. So the idea is if you if you're a landlord and you want to get 
get your property back for any reason. You want to sell it, you want to move back into it, or your tenant's not paying the rent, and you but you don't want to go through the whole drama of going to court and proving it, which takes months and months. You can just end the tenancy with two months' notice, and that um, that's that's a ability is supposed to be being taken away. So that's going to make it uh, far. That that's going to make it again less appealing because mm. because if they sorted out the court system simultaneously, so you would be able to get evictions through in a reasonable period of time, then it wouldn't be an issue. But they're probably not going to do that. So it's it then going to mean that if you're if you've got a large portfolio or if you're an institution, then you you can deal with it because it's not it's only going to be happening on a small proportion of your portfolio at any one time then you can absorb it. But if you've got one or two properties that you're relying on, especially for income, that's, you, could, you could go for a year without any income which isn't, and still have a mortgage to pay, which isn't really going to work. I mean, it's absolutely outrageous that somebody can just go into your house, rent it, and then not pay anything, and you can't get them out. It seems incredible that they could get A, get away with it, and B, there doesn't seem to be any downside for them for doing it. No. There really isn't. <laughs> I mean, they should be blacklisted or credit listed or, or have some form of um, ability to at least not do it again to somebody else. But I've, I've heard this. One of the reasons why, to be honest, I've I've always worried about it as a as a form of investment and just thought, well, isn't it better just to buy a, a real estate investment trust or something like that and get your exposure or even buy buy banks because they'll make money if the property market goes up, especially Lloyd's. Um but I get, you know, there's obviously more that you can get out of, out of actually invo- in, in, you know, investing in the property, but, but it is a big, um, it, I, I, why are they making it so bloody hard? It's really frustrating. Um, and, and pushing back against the landlords like this. Yeah. I, I think, well, I, to pick up on what you said, I think you're, you're right. Like, I think for, for many people like buying into a REIT or, or, so, or some other means of getting exposure to the market or just investing in something else is is like it's going to be a better option than buy to let but to an extent the best investment is one that you actually make and people feel more confident to actually make a property investment than something else mm. so it kind of it kind of works um why are they make why are they making it so hard <sighs> the i think that the challenge is that they've not really articulated what they want instead so like if they just didn't want individual small scale landlords to make up part of the housing mix then that would be fine but then they'd need to they'd need to find some something else they need to make it easier for people to buy homes they need to have more social housing and all that sort of thing but at the moment they seem to be trying to disincentivize um, landlords without anything else being in place. And it's especially the case in Scotland, where there's been even more legislation like this. There's been rent freezes, there's been eviction bans, there's all sorts. And they seem to be like really trying to push individual landlords out, but they've not really said what they want to have instead. Mm. And then and you, and you get, like, there are ma- massive numbers of people who are in the private rented sector who probably should be in social housing but there isn't any social housing and so they're so they 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 suffer from not having much security of tenure they suffer from rents going up they've housing benefit has been consistently sort of held back so as as rents have gone up 
housing benefit hasn't increased. So it's even been cut in, in places, which means people have even less access to, to, to that. And I think the reason for that is political. because it, it doesn't look good if you say, well, we've, we're taking all this housing benefit and giving it out to landlords. It just it sounds bad. Yeah. But, then, well, what, but what else are you meant to do? Because there, because there isn't any social housing. I suppose also they are in, uh, they're sort of implicating the landlords in the rise in property prices, making it seem as though it's kind of their fault. If, if only these pesky landlords would stop hoovering up all these properties and forcing the price up, then, mm-hmm. you know, then, then a couple who want to buy could could afford to buy but actually the, the reason as we know is all the bloody money printing they're doing that's what's yeah. causing the the value of the property to go up and and actually in what you're saying there makes makes it so that shock horror what the government are trying to do without any other um alternative is probably force the prices even higher because if you if you're going to have to take that risk of renting and not getting a return, you're going to charge more, not less. So they're making it worse. Yeah, but again, the, it's it's easier to sort of to well, I don't know. I think property as property is unique because it is it is an investment. It's an asset class, but it's also something that everyone needs, and so it is a tricky one. I don't know what the answer is, but mm. I do. But I do know that politicians aren't going to come out and say, sorry, house prices have gone up because we printed too much money. <laughs> they're, they're not going to say it or they don't realise it. But it's but so it, it's easier to blame it on landlords. So I, I think the, it all takes you back to Ackles' work and also the, the case for a land value tax, which I think is really interesting as well. One final one for me is, do you think there's any value still in buying in London property? And I know London's obviously very big, so it's it, it's a it, it's a it's a broad question. Or, or do you think all the value is outside of London? I would say until we get um, in, until we get some kind of like major correction, collapse, something. I don't think so, relatively speaking. So Lon- London may or may not end up doing okay, but anywhere else will probably be better, just purely because like return returns in london are so low your rental returns are so low and it's london had bounced back so quickly from the 2008 crash and had, and absorbed between then and 2013 also had so much growth that like affordability just got so stretched that prices couldn't go anywhere until wages increased and wages are now increasing and prices are coming down a bit in places so it, so it, it, you might get back to a point in where it does make sense again but at the moment i say there are large parts of the rest of the country that would represent a better investment Fred Harrison, who's the um, it, it's the proponent of the the eighteen year property cycle, and wrote about it uh, many years ago, he's forecasting the next downturn to be very big and yeah. actually quite worrying, really. Uh, which would make sense given the globalization, given the synchronization of all the economies. Um, what do you think about that? Do you think that's do you think there will be just a continuation of the the overall correction? Things will be higher than last time, and the, the trend continues. Or you would you be getting ready to bail out of everything at the next? I mean, hopefully we'll have a, have you on the pod before before it actually happens. But are you readying to exit everything at the next peak? Uh, 
It's so hard. I think if you the thing about the the cycle is that if you you could you could use it if you 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 could probably use it pretty well to to use it to know as a guide as to when to exit your investments and when to get back in again. The trouble is, it's that's so difficult to do. Property is so hard to transact in that mm. you need to end up having you can, and you, you can't just click a button and it's done. So you need to have so much conviction in the model that I don't think most people will actually do it. And and as soon as you do, then you you're you're, you're not getting any income from it anymore. And so I so I think you could use it as a pretty good guide for or dipping in and out. But it's so but property is so hard to dip in and out of. You could you could probably trade there are a few residential REITs you could probably trade trade that way if you wanted to. Mm. But in term, but but I think actual direct ownership of property is better suited to just kind of not worrying about it too much. Just going, I'm going to hold this for 20 plus years. Over that time, you know, the value is going to go down, the value is going to go up. It kind of doesn't matter until I'm going to sell it what it's worth. And the rental income stream is it's pretty much index linked because it goes up in line with wages over the long term. And rents, when, when there is a property crash, rents tend to go up a bit because more people suddenly need to rent. So that I'd sort of look at it that way mm. rather than trying to rather than trying to time the cycle in that respect. But I, I suppose the question would be is whether if you do get a sort of a crash in 2026 onwards, is that going to be is that going to be the big one that resets everything, or yeah. is it just going to be another kind of run of the mill sort of thing like we get every 18 years? Fred would say, mm. I. It's impossible to say, isn't it? Yeah, but, I mean, but, but I'd, I'd, I'd say it's probably. I'd guess that there's there are more there are more tricks left that they can use to keep things propped up, and so it's probably got longer to run until you do get like the ultimate reset. Yes, unless, as Tim was saying, we get the crack up boom, and then mm -hmm. it just becomes so disconnected that it, uh, it it does bring the system down, and there's this this big sort of move over or maybe that that's what they're planning to do with these cbdc's so we we, we shall see um tim sorry I, I hogged the mic there i'm really sorry was was no there problem. anything that you wanted to ask before no no, no nothing in the in the immortal words of um warren buffett and his right hand man um charlie munger charlie munger nothing to add <laughs> brilliant well i'm sorry I, i'm i'm glad that i didn't uh, uh you know take any time away from you asking a question um so if we could go to media picks uh, mm -hmm. Just before you go, Rob, that would be brilliant. Um, Tim, do you want to kick it off? I'll kick kick off. Um, mine is, I, I bought this book for my niece, and I'm now going to buy a copy for probably everybody in my family. I've already bought one for myself on Kindle. Um, it's a book called All the Best Lines, an informal history of the movies in quotes, notes, and anecdotes oh. by, the, by the wonderfully named George Tiffin. Excellent. Um, and it's it's got something for all the family, but... Suffice to say, here's an example of one of the reasons I think it's just a superb, superb compendium. After the crew on the 1943 movie Lifeboat had reported actress Tallulah Bankhead for refusing to wear underwear, the director Alfred Hitchcock was supposed to remark, I don't know if this is a matter for the costume department, makeup, or hairdressing. <laughs> 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 and it's packed with stuff like that. It's it's absolutely tremendous fun. Excellent. Brilliant. And that's just to, to repeat, that's um all the best lines and informal history of the movies in quotes, notes, and anecdotes by George Tiffin. It's about eleven quid on Amazon. Brilliant. 
Rob. Do you watch much on YouTube? I've got some sort of YouTube recommendations. Yes, yes, I do. I like there's Veritasium. I love I love Veritasium. Mm. Yeah, um, it's all all the only stuff I watch on like proper TV is like absolute trash and quiz shows. So I'm not going to recommend anything there. But <laughs> but on um, on on YouTube, do you know Patrick Boyle? No, I don't. Um, Patrick Boyle, he's um, I think he's a so he's some kind of finance professor or something. But he's he puts out he's like he put out videos about um, FTX, for example. But like what basically whatever is like big thing is in the news, he'll tend to put out a video about it. Um, it's like a, it's a good entry level explainer. But he's also just really funny. He's got an amazingly dry sense of humour. So it's uh, it's the the only thing where you all sort of like read something about the Turkish currency crisis and laugh three times it's 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 it's, it's, like, it's it's really really great um there's also um jay foreman jay, jay foreman yes that, yes 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 yeah so yeah. that that's that's that is that that's actually like pure comedy but i think he's brilliant i love his stuff yeah and, and in general i just think the i with with youtube i had my um i had my watch history like, disabled for years because just through kind of like some kind of vague paranoia about not wanting to be tracked but then and and the recommendations i got were crap but then i turned it on and now like the 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 recommendations on there are brilliant so i've started watching i've been finding all kinds of stuff that's just being suggested to me so i think just the quality of what you get on youtube in general is just amazing there's there's so much talent and so much so much interesting stuff for any kind of niche uh, I just love that. I'm I'm sort of spending far more of my time watching YouTube than anything else. And I'm, I think that's probably the way I think a lot of people are going to be spending their time in the future. Yeah, it's a, it's a real time sink, isn't it? You can just uh, start on one and then before you know it, a couple of hours. So surf, the, surf the algorithm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, well, look, mine is going to be your book, Rob, because I was going to recommend it anyway on the show. And then when we dis- discussed having you on, I thought, what better way to 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 do this to have you on and then and to recommend it and you know i i bought i bought three copies and it gave them away um as, as soon as i i'd read them because i i, I really loved it and so you, you from what i understand the um the, the new version that you're that you're re-releasing you're going to have extra chapters in there and you can also subscribe to your email address and get um, get updates on your thoughts, obviously, on your, your podcast. So for people who w- would be interested in that, can you just tell us how they would t- potentially put an order in for your book and where they would find you? Yeah, of course. Uh, the, and yeah, the, so the book was originally originally came out in the summer of 2022 and then I sort of had to start updating again in November. It was incredible how much time had happened and because he had the whole Liz Truss affair in that time as, and, and, and the, the, the whole picture can change completely around inflation and everything else in that time. So again, writing time sensitive books is an annoying habit of mine that I need to get out of. But, but so I've got, so I've got an update, I've got an updated it, um, added, sort of added an extra chapter and all that kind of thing. Um, but you can go and it's it's being reissued by Penguin as a hardback and audiobook on the 30th of March. So you can find it on Amazon or you can, or you can go to priceofmoney.co.uk. Ah, um, but right. I but, see. But, but because, but because the, um, 
but because this is a topic that is always going to be changing, there's a, sort of a link you can go to in that book to sort of where I've, I've said that basically every time something happens that I think is important and that I'm interested in, I'll sort of write a little bit and send it out to people. So it's a way that if they if they enjoyed the book and it kind of gave, gave them that grounding and got them interested in the topic, then it's a way that I can keep on following up with them and keeping them updated. And when is it actually released? Is it the end of March? Yeah, 30th of March. So you can go and pre-order it now and then it'll, yeah, it'll turn up on the 30th of March. Excellent. And what are your social handles? Um, I've, right now it's a question because I've only just started. I've only just started just just using social media um, recently. So on Twitter, I think it's Rob Dix. Let's see. You know what you should do? Go to robdix.com because that's my website where we can find links to everything else. But on on oh, Twitter is Rob Dix and Instagram is the Rob Dix. Right. Well, we'll put links in the show notes for everyone to to click on if they. Um, if they so desire, but um, absolutely fantastic. Loved having you on the show. It's been so interesting. There's so much more to talk about. So hopefully, if you can, it'd be great to get you back on and um, and, 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 and get your updated thoughts, if that would be okay. Yeah, no, I'd love to. It'd been really good to talk to you, Ray. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, everybody. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.